This episode is sponsored by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. Two blurry photos. I'm David Flora, and this is the 2020 Miss Cryptid Contest Roundup, where I announce the final finalist of this year's competition and then replay each finalist segment to refresh your memory and give our perilous pearls one more chance to impress you in their quest for the Golden Goatman Trophy. This is your spoiler warning in case you haven't heard any episodes from the contest this year. This would apply to you if you're a Spotify, Pandora, or iHeart listener. I don't put the miscryptids on those platforms in case there's any contract agreement trouble. So, if you are interested in hearing this year's miscryptid contest in order from week one and don't want to hear who has won each week, please hit the pause button on this episode now and find those episodes either on blurryphotos.org or Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere else. Alrighty, now it is time to announce the winner of Week 3. A sinister cyclone of fangs and nails swept through the third week as the Nandi Bear, Rusalka, and Yoroa Beast did battle. Your votes have been tallied, and the winner of week three of the 2020 Miss Cryptid Contest, and the final finalist to join the California Dark Watchers and Black Anis in the finals is... The Rusalka. Congrats to the Rusalka and good luck in the finals. Now it's up to you guys one more time to vote for who should win the 2020 Miss Cryptid Contest. It's also the last chance you have to enter your name and email for a chance to win a Miss Cryptid prize pack of your very own. One lucky winner will be chosen at random among the entrants, as well as one runner-up and a Miss Congeniality who will receive a shirt and some stickers and such, respectively. To help you decide, here's each contestant's segment once again, starting with week three and going backwards. Enjoy. And now we venture north to the eastern reaches of Europe and beyond, as we try to avoid the seductive lure of the Rusalka. (laughs) I had quite a bit of help with our second contestant as well. I reached out to the amazing author, Ronisa Avila, who has written several books on Slavic folklore, myths, and creatures, including a study of Rusalki, Slavic mermaids of Eastern Europe. Miss Avila was incredibly generous and provided me with a trove of information about the creature known as the Rusalka in her own words, which I will pass along to you now. Mankind's fascination with the sea has sparked imagination since the first person beheld its mighty waters. 
curiosity led people to invent the means to travel across the great oceans and eventually explore beneath them, trying to discover their secrets. Throughout the centuries, millennia in fact, people have created myths and legends about creatures living within the sea's depths. One of the most alluring and formidable beings to inspire writers, artists, children, and adults is the mermaid, who has been forever immortalized in stories such as Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. But there's more to this sea maiden than the story tells. In Slavic folklore, she's called a rusalka and lives mostly in freshwater bodies or swamps rather than the sea. In case you've never heard of a rusalka, She's a Slavic mermaid. The plural of the word is rusalki, but if you want to call them rusalkas, go ahead. We'll cringe, but we'll know what you mean. She is most popular in Eastern and Southern Europe, Russia, Bulgaria, Poland, Ukraine in particular. She's not your aerial type of mermaid, because she has no tail. In fact, she was once a living, breathing human girl, but she died before she married. Often, the cause of her death was drowning. I know this sounds odd in today's world, but the people who believed in them lived in a rural farming society. Fertility of both the land and people was critical to them for survival. They believed if girls died before they married and had children, then that fertility was lost, and the girls became part of the unclean dead. That is, they were cursed. People did have many rituals, though, to entice the Rusalki to return that fertility to them. Not everyone can see Rusalki, but those who can will tell you they look like normal girls, except they are extremely pale and they have long green hair. They can also shapeshift into geese, swans, snakes, silverfish, or frogs. Or they can appear as birds, like the sirens, and entice men with their songs. They don't really eat anything because they are, well, dead, or undead, after all. But some stories said they like wheat bread with salt, cheese, butter, and eggs. What they are more interested in is getting clothes. They were buried in wedding garments, even though they were never married. That's all part of the whole fertility mindset. So, eventually, those clothes wear out and the Rusalki are left wearing rags or nothing at all. They beg girls to leave them even a small rag to cover themselves with. Rather sad to think about, really. Rusalki weren't always thought of as dead girls, though. They were once considered goddesses or nature spirits. Talk about your kick-ass heroines. They weren't wimpy, sidekick-to-men-only goddesses, but powerful ones who ruled the land. By then, the Orthodox Church intervened. They didn't totally wipe the Rusalki out, but the Church authority repressed the role of these goddesses as much as it repressed the role women played in society, and Rusalki lost their goddess status. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. You can understand they probably didn't care too much about this demotion. From goddesses to dead girls, and uncleaned cursed dead girls at that, all because some supposedly holy men thought they weren't worthy of the goddess status. So, they revolted and started their campaign of torturing men, especially any man who jilted them when they were alive 
because it was men who decided Rusalki weren't worthy of exalted status. Being dead really wasn't so bad. If they had lived and married, the girls would have lost what the Russians call their volia, their freedom. As Rusalki, they could be wild and free of male dominance. They usually didn't bother women or girls unless they were jealous of their happy life. And they left children alone unless they had an overwhelming desire to nurture a child since they couldn't have one of their own. They were dead, after all, but still retained the feelings of the average rural girl. So men were their main targets. They would either drown them, typical mermaid fashion, or tickle them to death with their breasts. Which, I forgot to mention earlier, were huge, even if they had been small during their lifetime. This was just another sign of their unused fertility. Alright, stop laughing. Have you ever been tickled? If so, you know it can be quite painful, especially if prolonged. And a Rusalka most often was accompanied by other Rusalki, so you're talking about several of these mermaids tickling you. When you consider that some stories say the Rusalki had iron-tipped breasts, well, just ouch. You wouldn't want someone to tickle you that way. Okay, laugh if you want to, but I'm glad I'm not male, says Ronisa, so I wouldn't have to endure that torture. They also loved to dance and would flatter, or force, a shepherd to play his caval, a flute-like instrument, for them all night long. He was fortunate if he survived and only had holes in his shoes and blisters on his fingers. Geez, you might ask, is there any hope to escape their attention? How could men protect themselves from these assaults? Well, the Russians would tell you to wear your baptismal cross, especially if you go into the forest or near water. You could also wear ferns in your hair when you go swimming. This prevents them from pulling you under. Magical chants are also useful to keep them away from you. Other methods are to prick the Rusalki with a pin or throw wormwood in their eyes. Be sure you don't carry anything that attracts Rusalki, like parsley, roses, birch, and especially not their favorite plant, rosin, which is burning bush. Just ask him for trouble if you do. They'll think you want to be tickled. Rusalki also love telling riddles. If you have the correct answer, they'll leave you alone. But if you get it wrong, well, prepare to be tickled to death. As to whether or not they do any of this torture maliciously is up for debate. Some people say they are bent on destroying men. Other people claim they're innocent maidens who are only trying to find the love they never had while alive. Outside of folklore, Rusalki were often portrayed as tragic figures. Antonin Dvorak's opera has similarities to Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. The mermaid in this story, called Rusalka, falls in love with a prince, but must lose her voice before she can have the opportunity to meet him as a living being. In Act 1, Rusalka has fallen in love with a human prince who often steps into the water where she lives. Although she can caress him, alas, he cannot see her, because she is merely part of the watery element herself. 
She wants to become human so she can embrace him and feel his arms around her as well. She asks the witch, Yejibaba, to help her. Witches are witches and demand much of their supplicants. Yejibaba tells Rusalka that she will lose her ability to speak if she becomes mortal. On top of that, if the prince doesn't love her, he will die and she will be eternally damned. Rusalka agrees and drinks the potion the witch gives her. The prince finds her, immediately becomes infatuated with the speechless woman, and takes her to the palace. So far, so good for Rusalka. The prince wants her. But fate can be cruel. In Act 2, although the fickle prince summons guests to his pending marriage to Rusalka, he soon pays more attention to a visiting foreign princess, who can speak and flatter him while mocking the mute Rusalka. Poor, poor Rusalka. It doesn't take long before the prince professes his love to the foreign princess and rejects Rusalka. Her eyes filled with pain, she returns to her watery home. The foreign princess, however, is disgusted with the prince, even though she's achieved taking his affection away from Rusalka. In Act 3, poor, poor Rusalka. She doesn't know what to do. She returns to the witch for help. Yejibaba gives her a dagger and tells her she must kill the prince in order to be free and return to her former life. Horrified, Rusalka throws the dagger into the lake. Never will she kill the man she loves. She dissolves into the water, forever alienated from her family. And now she has become something vile, a spirit that lures people to their death in the water. The prince, having been touched by Rusalka's love, can't erase her from his mind. He frantically searches for where he first found her. He calls to her and she appears. Kiss me, please, he begs. I can't stop thinking about you. I regret being a fool. She tells him that her kiss will mean his death, to which he responds, Kiss me, kiss me, give me peace. Your kisses will redeem my sin. I die happy. I die happy in your embrace. They kiss, and yes, he dies. Rusalka kisses her dead lover one more time, thanking him for letting her experience human love. She releases his body and sinks into the lake, forever condemned to bring death to those who come near. Yes, poor, poor Rusalka. Well, you must have a bad impression of the Rusalki by now, but even though they cause pain and death, they have a benevolent side. They're magical healers. Every year, several weeks after Easter, on a holiday called Spasovden, or Ascension, they ride through the night sky in a golden chariot made of human bones. Their green hair sparkles in the moonlight, and their transparent clothes billow around them as they hasten their way to a field full of white, pink, or red roses. They're here to plunder the flower. Not only is it their favorite flower, it's also magical and used by witches and healers as well as Rusalki. It's said that if a lit match is brought to the flowers in hot and sunny weather, a flame will explode in the air. Black smoke is released, but the plant remains unaffected by the fire. Below the Rusalki in the field of Rosen lie the ill, the crippled, the maimed, the childless women. Each person lies on a white blanket. At their head, they put a white cotton towel, a bowl of water, and a ritual bread 
as a gift for the Rusalki. Spazovden is a time for impossible wishes to come true. Each person there hopes the Rusalki will accept their gift and give them a cure. At midnight, as the Rusalki stir up a whirlwind in their frenzied flight, they bestow cures upon those below at their whim. To the crippled or maimed, they give new limbs. To the blind, they give sight, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. To the women who cannot conceive, they give fertility. It's said that if any woman conceives on this miraculous night, it's believed to have happened in a magical way and is not interpreted as scandalous behavior. Does everyone receive a cure? Sadly, no. In the morning, people check to see what's floating in their bowl of water. If it's a green leaf or flower, the person will be healed. If the leaf is dry or the water is filled with dirt, however, the person won't be cured and may even die soon. Regardless of the outcome of the Rusalki's visit, everyone must leave the healing place in silence to keep the Rusalki happy and make sure their wish will be granted to those who were favored by the mermaids. Are they good or are they bad? I guess you'll only ever truly know when you meet one for yourself. Thank you to Ronisa Avila, and thank you to our penultimate contestant, the Rusalka. And last on the list tonight, we take a plane to the other side of the world to traipse the hills and bowers of Leicester, England, as we try to evade capture by Black Annis. Growing up in America, I would hear from time to time about the constant threat of boogeymen under the bed, in the closet, in the dark, always waiting to grab those that misbehaved or didn't follow the rules or what have you. It's a way to get someone to fall in line through fear, but my recollection of how they operated ends at simply being got. In the countryside of Leicester, England, a more sinister bogeyman, as they call it, doesn't stop at just getting you. Known by such monikers as Black Anna, Black Agnes, and Cat Anna, the terrifying bogeyman known most commonly as Black Annis not only snatches children, she takes them back to her cave, skins them, eats them, and makes clothes and decorations out of their tanned skin. So, who's up for some behaving? Huh? Behaving? 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 I don't know, I like my skin. It's fine where it is. It doesn't need to be pants for someone. Black Annis is a fixture in Leicestershire's folklore, going back to the 18th century and most likely a long while before that. She's described as being a tall, lanky, blue-skinned hag with iron claws, or at least nails as hard and sharp as iron, and yellowed sharp teeth. She feeds on occasional livestock and human flesh, with a particular taste for children. One spine-tingling aspect of her character is her penchant for reaching through windows to grab kids as they slept. This has been tied to the cottages in Leicestershire being built with purposely small windows, the thought being it was to deter Black Annis's grabby claws. She only comes out of her cave at night, and the sunlight is said to turn her to stone. 
She has a horrendous howl that can be heard five miles away, and residents of the countryside knew to listen for the sound of teeth gnashing, for this betrayed her proximity and gave them time to fasten the windows and hang herbs for protection. Her cave, located in the Dane Hills, was hewn out of sandstone by her own clawed hands. A majestic oak tree stands above the entrance. She is said to sometimes lay in wait in its branches, ready to pounce on passerby below. Black Annis is metal AF, and her pedigree is nothing to scoff at. Her legend is related in a short passage found in Charles Bilson's collection of County Folklore, Volume 1. Little children who went to run on the Dane Hills were assured that Black Anna lay in wait there to snatch them away to her bower, and that many like themselves she had scratched to death with her claws, sucked their blood, and hung up their skins to dry. Leicester Chronicle, 5th of September, 1874. Her abode is mentioned in an old letter from 1874. I have looked through my deeds, and find that the earliest deeds in my possession dated 13th and 14th May, 1764, contain the following description. All that close, or parcel of land, commonly called or known by the name of Black Annie's Bower Close. In the conveyance to myself, the description is Black Anna's Bower Close. Letter from the Honourable Sir John Meller to the editor of the Leicester Chronicle, 17th November, 1874. Folklorists have tried to pin down the origin of this ugly Betty, but like a dropped can of treacle, it's a bit sticky. She's been tied to various pagan deities and figures, including the Celtic mother goddess Danu, or Anu, the Gaelic Kaliak Vera, the Germanic Hel, or even a more ancient goddess. Ties have been made between Annas and the different aforementioned deities, and it's hard to tell which inspired which, even in part. Ancient child sacrifice has been linked to Annis' taste for kid flesh, though that's heavy speculation. Poet and classicist Robert Graves postulated that many folklore mythologies and traditions involve a trio of goddesses, including the maiden, the mother, and the crone, the last of which could fit Black Annis, if you take away much of the malevolence. She earned the name Cat Anna when the belief that she could shapeshift into a cat gained popularity. In fact, a holiday was held for years on the Monday after Easter, called Black Monday, where a fair was held in Leicestershire. Around noon, a horse and rider would venture out to her supposed cave, called Black Annis's Bower, tie a dead cat soaked in aniseed water to the back of the horse, and ride from there to the mayor's house with a pack of hounds following. There are many layers to this ritual which represent many ideas, not least of which was the triumph of the sun over winter, the mock hunting of hares, and the power of aniseed to ward off witches, to name a few. Aniseed, black anis, there's a pretty blatant connection there, too. Besides the folkloric roots, there have been a couple actual people connected to her, and more than a few accounts recorded in British history. A tenuous connection to a witch or wise woman who counseled Richard III has been made, she who prophesied Richard's eventual downfall and possibly suffered defamation when it came true. 
but a more likely candidate has been pinned on a 15th century Dominican nun named Agnes Scott. Agnes, besides having a classic witch name, was apparently an anchorite, which, as I learned, is a person who withdraws from secular society to lead an intensely ascetic life, that is to say, foregoing any pleasures for the most basic and pious of lifestyles. Anchorites are similar to hermits, except they have a fixed place to live, and apparently they also go through a funeral rite, meaning they are functionally dead to the world and answer only to a bishop. Agnes is said to have lived in a cave around the Dane Hills and ran a colony for lepers. The perceived oddity of her behavior, coupled with sentiments from the Protestant Reformation, may have led to her villainization. As some authors have pointed out, though, Robert Graves may have been the first one to make this connection, which should probably make one pause due to his fanciful colorization of what he wrote about. He made stuff up, is what I mean. Agnes Scott did exist, however, that is not made up. Her villainization is the thing that may be in question, as it comes from Robert Graves, but there is definite logic to it. Perhaps the most famous Black Annis account, though, is a 1797 poem by Leicester native Lieutenant John Hayrick of the 15th Regiment Light Dragoons, titled, On a Cave Called Black Annis's Bower. From down the plain, a winding pathway falls, from Glenfieldville to Leicester's ancient walls. Nature or art with imitative power, far in the glen has placed Black Annis' bower. Our oak, the pride of all the mossy dell, spreads its broad arms above the stony cell, and many a bush with hostile thorns arrayed forbids the secret cavern to invade. While delving vales each way meander round, and violet banks with redolence abound. Here, if the uncouth song of former days soul not the page with falsehood's artful lays, Black Annis held her solitary reign, the dread and wonder of the neighbouring plain. The shepherd grieved to view his waning flock, and traced his firstlings to the gloomy rock. No vagrant children culled the floverets then, for infant blood off-stained the gory den. Not Sparta's mount, for infant tears renowned, echoed more frequently the piteous sound. Oft the gaunt maid, the frantic mother cursed, whom Britain's wolf with savage nipples nursed, whom Leicester's sons beheld against the scene, not dared to meet the monster of the green. Tis said the soul of mortal man recoiled to view black Annis' eye so fierce and wild. Vast talons foul with human flesh there grew in place of hands, and features livid blue glared in her visage, while the obscene waste warm skins of human victims close embraced. But time more man than certain, the more slow, at length against Annis drew his sable bow. The great decree the pious shepherds blessed, and general joy the general fear confessed. Not without terror they the cave survey, where hung the monstrous trophies of her sway. Tis said that in that rock large rooms were found, scooped with her claws beneath the flinty ground. In these swains her hated body threw but left the entrance still to future view, that children's children might the tale rehearse and bards record it in their tuneful verse. But in these listless days, the idle bard gives to the wind all these of cold regard. Forgive then if in rough, unpolished song an unskilled swain the dying tale prolong. And you, ye fair, whom nature's scenes delight, 
If Anis's bower your vagrant steps invite, Ere the bright sun Aurora's car succeed, Or dewy evening quench the thirsty mead, Forbear with chilling senses to refuse Some generous tribute to the rusty muse, A violet or common daisy throw, Such gift as Maro's lovely nymphs bestow. Then shall your bard survive the critic's frown, And in your smiles enjoy his best renown. If you're out after dark, keep your ears open for teeth gnashing and beware any howls. And if you're home, shut the windows and hang some garlic, hazel, and fennel above them. You might need all the help you can get against black anise. Thank you to Grant Howitt for his wonderful readings for black anise. That was not Benedict Cumberbatch, that was uh, Grant Howitt. I could have told you that Benedict Cumberbatch read those, and I would have not felt bad about it. <laughs> Grant has been on Blastro Podcast with Dark Mark Soloff several times, and was kind enough to give me those readings. He designs games, and you can find his work at rrdgames.com. And finally, we cross the Pacific once more to the coast of Western California to be stared at menacingly by the California Dark Watchers. Just south of San Jose, the Santa Lucia Mountains run along California's coast, harshly meeting the Pacific Ocean by way of seaside cliffs and rugged beaches. It's a landscape of magical views and dreamy experiences, and it's also home to some of the creepiest anomalous phenomena in the state the form of what has come to be known as the Dark Watchers. Known by early Spanish settlers as Los Vigilantes Oscuros and encountered by numerous witnesses throughout the years, the Dark Watchers are described as humanoid, phantasmal figures only seen at twilight or dawn. When seen, they are said to be standing high up on a mountain ridge, silhouetted against the deepening darkness staring into the distance, which just so happens to be where the witness is. One quick glance away and back, and the figure will have vanished. In some accounts, the figure melts into the ether right in front of the witness's eyes. From far away, they always seem to be cloaked in darkness or some kind of cape or large coat, and they wear wide-brimmed hats, and more than one account has them holding what looks like a walking stick. They have also been reported to be giant, owing to the size of the silhouette seen from a distance. Always on the horizon, no one is ever able to get close to them for any details or confirmation, and any attempts always end with the mysterious figures disappearing before anyone can get to them. Silent, still, and elusive, witnesses invariably get the uncanny feeling they're being watched, hence the name for these strange eerie shadows. Information beyond that is scant. Most sources you can find say the legend goes back to the lore of the Chumash peoples who inhabited west-central California for thousands of years. However, this appears to be a pretty poor attempt at an appeal to antiquity, as the lore and traditions of the Chumash have been largely collected and recorded, and nothing like these figures is present in those stories. 
A short mention in the book Haunted Places, the National Directory, mentions a group of soldiers digging around an old fort at Rancho Lompoc in 1833. They are said to have found a crypt with remains of a 12-foot-tall giant human, or humanoid, and local natives believed it was one of an ancient tribe called the Oma, which were who the Dark Watchers actually were, according to them. The Oma are connected to Bigfoot legends in the area. I didn't see the source for the entry, though as dubious as it sounds, I won't dismiss it out of hand. We can just look into that another time. Modern stories have them, though, including a cameo in a 1937 poem by Robinson Jeffers, and in a short story called Flight by John Steinbeck, part of a 1938 collection called The Long Valley. In Flight, a young man kills another man in a drunken brawl and has to run away from home for fear of retribution. Here is the excerpt from that story that mentions the Watchers. When thou comest to the high mountains, if thou seest any of the dark-watching men, go not near to them, nor try to speak to them, and forget not thy prayers. The story goes on to describe Pepe's journey through the wilderness from Monterey, southward, near the coast. Pepe turned in his saddle and looked back. He was in the open now. He could see from a distance. As he ascended the trail, the country grew more rough and terrible and dry. The way wound about the bases of great square rocks. Little gray rabbits skittered in the brush. A bird made a monotonous high creaking. Eastward, the bare rock mountaintops were pale and powder dry under the dropping sun. The horse plodded up and up the trail toward the little V in the ridge, which was the pass. Pepe looked suspiciously back every minute or so, and his eyes sought the top of the ridges ahead. Once, on a white barren spur, he saw a black figure for a moment, but he quickly looked away, for it was one of the Dark Watchers. No one knew who the Dark Watchers were, nor where they lived, but it was better to ignore them and never show interest in them. They did not bother one who stayed on the trail and minded his own business. The air was parched and full of light dust blown by the breeze from the eroding mountains. Pepe drank sparingly from his bag and corked it tightly and hung it on the horn again. The trail moved up the dry shale hillside, avoiding rocks, dropping under clefts, climbing in and out of old water scars. When he arrived at the little pass, he stopped and looked back for a long time. No dark watchers were to be seen now. The trail behind was empty. The second piece of literature to mention them was written around the same time by the poet Robinson Jeffers. I won't read the entirety of Such Counsels You Gave to Me, the poem they're mentioned in, because it's a lengthy one, but luckily it's at the beginning. A young man carrying a battered straw suitcase climbed slowly the wavering castle track from an offset gorge of Malpaso Canyon and across the hill toward Howron's place. He staggered from time to time with illness or extreme fatigue. 
Behind him in the magnificent afterglow of November sundown, the two brightest of planets hung close together, like brilliant condensations of the amber light above the crimson. The sky overhead was still blue and pale. The young man was perfectly alone on the white-grassed hills under the sky. He was like a hardly-noticed thought of unhappiness passing through a great serene mind. But when he approached the fall of the hill toward Howrens, he saw apparently a person on the verge, outlined against the darkening commissure of the farther hills, intently gazing into the valley. The young man's tired and dulled mind, bred in these hills taught in the city, reverted easily toward his dead childhood. He thought it might be one of the watchers, who are often seen in this length of coast range, forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human. They come from behind ridges and watch. But when he approached it, he recognized the shabby clothes and pale hair, and even the averted forehead and concave line from the eye to the jaw so that he was not surprised when the figure turning toward him in the quiet twilight showed his own face. Then it melted and merged into the shadows beyond it. The young man thought heavily that, in his state of mind and body hallucination, was not surprising. That it turned out to be the protagonist is a device serving this particular work, not the Watchers in general. I don't know. I don't think everybody sees these things and think, hey, if I get close enough, it's probably going to be me looking back at me. Although I guess that is pretty freaky. Both writers were from that area, so local tales no doubt influenced them to add these mysterious figures to their works. And speaking of locals, the narrator of that Steinbeck entry you heard earlier was in fact good friend Derek Hayes, who made a trip up to Big Sur a couple years back looking for the Watchers. I asked him to share his experience. Having camped in this region several times, I can attest that Big Sur is a magical place. It's one of those rare locations that seems to produce an energy all its own. No, I'm not all woo-woo or anything, but it wouldn't be a stretch to list it with places like Sedona, Arizona, Devil's Tower, Wyoming, or even Mount Shasta here in California. The weather in Big Sur certainly helps lend to the creepy vibe. Picture a rocky, tattered shoreline. 200 feet above is a two-lane highway that cuts through the Santa Lucia foothills like an asphalt artery. And further up, to the east, is the Santa Lucia mountain range. For centuries, strange, tall, dark figures have been reported standing at the top of those mountains. In my many visits, I have not laid eyes on a single dark watcher. But once you set foot in Big Sur, and you feel the spray from the waves on your face, and you breathe in that lifting fog, it won't take much of an imagination to think that one day you just might. Possible explanations have been floated for what the watchers are, though it's all speculation as it's very near impossible to prove such an elusive phenomenon. Some have said it's akin to the Brock Inspector, the same thing that accounts for the Gray Man of Bane McDew, an optical illusion of a shadow on fog, though it doesn't explain the sightings in a clear twilight. Another one is infrasound, 
or sound heard below 20 hertz, which can have odd effects on the human body, including anxiety, chills, and possibly distorted vision leading to hallucination. Ocean waves can generate sounds like this, though they're usually artificially produced or made by certain large animals. And of course, there's the simplest explanation, misinterpretation of natural landscapes. Rocks and trees at a distance can easily be confused for a human shape. But where's the fun in that? So if you ever find yourself on the Pacific Coast Highway, round about Big Sur at twilight, or the godforsaken hour at dawn, keep a wary eye on the mountainous horizon to watch out for the California Dark Watchers. All right, there you have it, your three finalists this year. Make sure to cast your last vote for who you think should win over at blurryphotos.org. I have a few thank yous I'd like to pass along real quick. Thank you to Jason and Tasha for the wonderful gifts and show suggestion you sent me. Thank you, guys. Thanks to Nathaniel, Marie, Emily, and Joseph for buying me coffees on coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash blurry photos. Thank you guys for that. I really appreciate it. And thank you to Ellen, Corinne, Fraser, and Denise for absolutely destroying the donate button on blurryphotos.org. That is so kind of you all. Thank you. It really made my day several times. Thank you guys. I got a round table with Derek and Zinger coming out soon, as well as a pretty compelling interview. So stay tuned for those. For now, however, I've been Mr. Congeal Neality, David Flora. Don't stop blur even. <laughs>